halfway through the first semester of my freshman year in college, I got word that my parents were separating. I was very concerned about this, of course, and I'd always been the one in my family. I'm the oldest of four kids. I'd always been the one who sort of made everybody laugh whenever there was tension, and there was lots of tense moments with my mom and dad when we were growing up. I'd kind of insert myself and tell a little funny story or, or do something silly. If, if my dad came back from the office, from the church that he served, and he was upset about something that happened at the church or some, some other thing, I was the guy who would do some goofy stuff. In fact, I, I created a series of imitations. I imitated uh, certain movie characters and politicians. My favorite imitation, the one I got the most laughs, was doing the Nutty Professor. Not Eddie Murphy's Nutty Professor, Jerry Lewis's Nutty, nutty Professor. And it was my way of, of trying to calm everything down. I had no idea, as a young person, that that was a bad idea and not healthy practice for the family to somehow expect one of the kids to do that. But nonetheless, at, at age 17, as a freshman in college, I still thought that was my role, and so I told my roommate, Mike, that I'd be going home. And Mike and I had been only rooming together for a couple of months, but we established a really good friendship. He was a great guy. We really liked hanging out uh, with Mike. He was an older, more grizzled student. He was like 19. Mike looked right at me when I told him I planned to go home and that it was my job to, to help the family get through this. He said, Glenner, that was my nickname in school, Glenner, it is not your job to fix your parents. It is not your job to rescue your family. Wise words for someone only 19. It would be 14 years later after many long late night conversations with my wife, Julie, and some serious hard conversations with my therapist that I would learn that Mike was right. That's not an appropriate role for a child in, in a family. Nonetheless, at the time, I went ahead and my dad arranged for a ride for me to come home. I left Northwest Christian College in Eugene, Oregon, where I was in school, and went, went down to, to San Francisco to, to be with my family. And sure enough, there was a lot of tension. There was, there was a lot of concern between mom and dad. And so I did my normal thing and told the jokes and told the stories. And then, then I went and visited a couple of schools, church-related colleges in the Bay Area that I was thinking about attending. But the whole time I was away and the whole time I was gone, I kept thinking about my friends back at school. The guy who lived next door to us, his name was Chuck. Chuck and Mike and I became fast friends, good buddies. We did everything together just in that first two months. And I kept thinking, I want to go back to that school. I went home one day, said to my dad, I want to go back to Northwest Christian. He said, okay. I called the school. They said, okay. I called my roommate, Mike. I said, I hope you haven't got a new roommate because I'm coming back. He said, great. My dad arranged for a ride for me to go home. I walked into the men's dorm at Northwest Christian College, up onto the second floor, right up to room 244, opened the door, and there's my friend Chuck and my friend Mike standing in, in the room, and on the, on, the, on the sliding glass window was this huge sign that said, Welcome home, sucker. <laughs> what were they saying to me? What was the message? You belong here. You're our friend. Welcome home. Welcome back to the place where you are welcomed, received, and accepted. You know, I, I was their friend. I was their goofy, long-haired, uber-liberal friend from San Francisco. They were my very conservative, short-haircut guys from Oregon friends. And to this day, to this day, 
we remain great friends. My buddy Mike became a pastor as well, was hired at a church in, in Oregon as a youth director in 1984. He's been there uh, almost 40 years, and the last 10, he's been the senior pastor in that, in that congregation. A wise and wonderful one, I might add. The church is at its best when we create a sense of belonging where we create a community where friendships can thrive, relationships can grow, where you feel as though you are a part of something that matters, where, you're, where you are seen, where someone knows your name. That's the church at its best. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, towards the end, knows that he's about to be betrayed and arrested. He knows things are difficult. He's in great danger. But you, don't, you can almost hear in between the lines in John's gospel, hear Jesus taking a deep breath. He's gathered with his disciples in an upper room. In the midst of all the fear and the anxiety and the terror that was there hovering about them, he says, I no longer call you servants. Now I call you friends. It's a beautiful moment in scripture where Jesus creates that deep sense of belonging, of friendship. And we know though, we know that we don't always find that kind of community. Some of you have talked to me, told me stories in my office and over coffee and in, in the hallways and the narthex and other places over lunch and meals and, 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 and other different places around town. Talk to me about the pain that you experienced, the sadness you felt when someone refused your love or rejected your love or betrayed you in, in love. I, I remember talking to someone once who told me about a time she was made fun of and teased when she was only nine years old by kids in school who she thought were her friends. 70 years later, she said to me, 70 years later, it still hurts. I can still feel the pain of their taunts and their teases. And according to the Harvard Business Review we learned last week, when you don't feel like you belong, when you feel like you've been shoved away, pushed aside, ignored, gone unseen, the research says it indeed creates physical pain. I'm certain that the reason people flocked to Jesus was he created a safe community for them to participate in. He created a place where they would be accepted, where they would be loved, where they would not be called a sinner. In fact, if you, you can check me on this. In no place does Jesus ever call anyone a sinner. Oh, he'll challenge sinful behavior and action, sure. Never does he describe someone, never does he define a human being as a sinner. In Jesus' presence, you were not required, as Mary Oliver so beautifully said in the poetry this morning, you didn't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles. You were given a hand and lifted up, accepted with whatever flaws and failures you had in your life. It's a beautiful promise of the way God loves us and, welcome, and welcomes us. So often though, so often we have a hard time receiving that. So often we have a tar hard time allowing that, that love to not only be received, but to flow through us and given away to, to another. But what Jesus does is he has authority. It's interesting, if you pay attention to the, the story of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, 
according to Matthew's version of it, you get to the end and the people in the crowd are amazed by his teaching. They can't believe how brilliant he seems to be in the way he teaches to them. And someone says, it's as though he preaches with an authority that we've never seen before. He preaches as one with authority. Where did Jesus' authority come from? His religious role and power? No. Did it come from his political understandings and role there? No. Did it come from military might? No. His authority came from his own life. They saw in the way that Jesus lived and loved a reflection of the very teaching that he was given. You can't separate Jesus' life from his teaching. They're not two separate entities. They are one and a part of the other. It's through his life and the way he lived that his teaching took on a sense of authority. Sometimes we get confused about authority and power. I read this week uh, the reflections of a Lutheran pastor named Gerald Sitzer. Pastor Sitzer grew up on his farm, on a, on a farm with his grandparents. He spent every summer working on his grandparents' farm when he was a little boy, all the way up into his late teens. He was a part of the crew that brought in the crops and did all the work that comes, comes with the farm. He says, my grandfather had power. My grandmother had authority. He said, my grandfather's power came from the fact that if I didn't do what he told me to do, I would be punished. I knew I had to do it. My grandmother had authority because she loved me unconditionally. I knew if I failed, if I made a mistake, if I didn't get the work done on time, she would still love me. My grandmother, he said, had authority in my life, and I did what she asked me to because I wanted to. That authority gives us the power and the beauty, the ability and the beauty to become who we are, to allow our natural gifts and graces to emerge, to flow from our soul out in, into the world. It's an amazing thing when that sense of community is created, where we have the authority through the community to simply be who we are. Uh, the business world is picking up on this. Let's hear from LaFawn Davis. She's a vice president at Indeed. Psychological safety is what makes us feel we belong. When you feel psychologically safe, you believe others will give you the benefit of the doubt. You can ask questions, raise issues without fear. You can be vulnerable with others and be who you are, which in turn helps you connect with others. Did you see that phrase in the second to last line? Gives you the ability to be who you are. Jesus teaching 2,000 years ago, the reading we heard today from John chapter 10, underlines that point. You will never be let go. You will never be left behind. You will never be taken away from God's care. In life and in death, we will continue to be held by the very power, the beauty of God's arms. God will embrace us and welcome us and encourage us and accept us. It's a simple and clear teaching and a beautiful one. Fred Craddock, the great preacher who's in the resurrection now, preached on John chapter 10, the same text we heard a moment ago. Gave a pretty good sermon, he said. I, I liked my sermon. Afterwards, when the sermon was over, he was at the, at the back greeting people, and a little boy came up to him and said, Professor Craddock, may I tell you a story? Fred said, please, I would like to hear it. I live on a farm. I have many siblings. At the end of the day, especially in the summer, my mom will come out on the porch, and she'll just start calling all of us, it's time to come home. It's time to come home for dinner. But I don't go. In fact, as soon as I hear my mom calling, calling 
me to come home, I stop and I look at my dog. My dog goes everywhere with me. I look at my dog and when he hears my mom's voice, he sits and he looks up at me too. It's only when I look down at my dog and I say, okay, now let's go, that we run together. The dog knows his voice and knows who his master is. Fred, by the way, said, not only was the little boy's story shorter than Fred's sermon, it was better than his sermon. <laughs> That's the promise of John 10. We will not be snatched. We will not be taken away from the hand of God. We will not be left behind. We will not be ignored or, or forgotten. But sometimes we get in our own way. Sometimes our own selfish needs or desires, our own egos trip us up cause us to stumble, cause us not to see, see the, the beauty of the world around us. And we just get caught up in our own stuff that we end up in great pain. My friend Cynthia Hale is an African-American pastor in, in Atlanta, Georgia. I got to know her when I was serving a church in, in Atlanta. She's the senior minister at, at the Ray of Hope Christian Church. I heard her once speak at a, at a pastor's conference. There was nothing but pastors in the room. And she called on us to, to pay attention to who we are. And she said, I know. I know that many, if not most, if not all of you, have shed tears in your ministries. I know there are sleepless nights. I know there are times when you feel like you've been disrespected, overwhelmed with insecurity. I know. And part of the problem is because it's not about you. The first time I heard her say that, the first time I encountered those words, I just kind of took a step back and said, whoa, Cynthia, I wasn't talking to her, but this was in my head. Cynthia, are you serious? You were reeling me in there. You pulled me in. You know about the tears. You know about the feelings of insecurity. You know about the sleepless nights. Amen, sister, keep preaching it, keep preaching it. And then she says, it's not about you. It's about God. I had that story in the margin of my notes earlier this week as I was putting this sermon together. And I took a break from the sermon writing. And I went and, and, and went on social media for a little bit and just was scrolling on through. And all of a sudden, somebody's page, I don't remember whose it was, there's a, a, a quote, context-free quote, nothing else but just this one quote, it's not about you. I went, okay, God, I get it. Thank you very much. It's not about us. It's the simple truth that we are already loved and accepted. And if we can get out of our own way and receive that love, that love can flow through us and out to the world. But it's not easy. Sometimes the simplest truths are not only the most profound, they're the ones most difficult to practice. Don Miller writes about this in his book, Scary Close. He tells about the time he and his fiance were having a, a, a bowl of ice cream together. They'd gone for a walk through their little community, stopped in this little mom and pop ice cream shop and were having, uh, having ice cream. It was just a sweet and lovely moment. And his fiance, Betsy, she looked up at him and she said, Donald, I love you. He didn't say, I love you too. He didn't say, thank you. He instead made a self-deprecating joke. He said, boy, if you really knew me though, boy, I don't know. Once we get married, once you really know me, you might not love me. She didn't laugh. So he repeated the same line over again. Every preacher in the world knows if you don't laugh, just keep on going. Leave the joke behind. 
when he finished his little, his little self-deprecating comment, she said, you see, you're being a jerk. What are you talking about, he said. I, I'm, just, I'm just being funny. No, you're being a jerk because what you're saying, what you're telling me is that my love is conditional. That if I ever see any flaws in you or any failures in you, that I might pull my love away. That I'm not fully going to give you my, my, my love. You're telling me I don't love you unconditionally. You're being a jerk. In his book, he acknowledges it. And then he reflects on that experience. And he says, it's through our flaws that we receive grace. It's through our flaws that we can receive grace and then become more gracious people. The flaws aren't a sign of failure. They're a sign of the place, that broken place, where God wants to infuse us, infuse you with love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He's careful now to offer this cautionary note. It's dangerous to confuse enablement with grace. Grace doesn't enable poor behavior. Grace doesn't enable poor behavior. It, it, it'll name it. It'll call it out. It's, it's dangerous to confuse enablement with grace. My friend Dave Long Higgins, who is the minister for the conference here in uh, the United Church of Christ here in Ohio, he says, grace always, grace always, always, always. Grace always acts first on behalf of the victim. And when it does, the enabling is pushed aside. Anytime you've given yourself in a relationship with a deep and abiding love for the other, you've taken a risk. The other may reject you. The other may push you aside. But any time you've given yourself in a deep abiding love to another, or any time you've seen someone else in a relationship where they've given deep and abiding love to each other, in your family, at work, at school, wherever it might be, any time you've seen a relationship like that, it is a reflection of the same love that God has for the world. It is a reflection of God's deep abiding desire for you to know that you are a beloved child of God. I believe with all my heart, soul, and mind that it is the, it is the beauty of God's love that knits the universe together, that if God ever stopped loving us and the universe, everything would disappear in a flash and in an instant. It is God's love that allows all of this and all of you all of us to be. You are a thread in the tapestry of God. If that's true, and I believe it is, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to, to just let go. To give in. Not give up, but to give in and allow the beauty of God, the love of God, the grace of God to bless you even now. After all, you belong.
in God. We belong in God.